0: Welcome to the Endless Knot Podcast,
1: where the more we know,
0: the more we want to find out,
1: tracing serendipitous connections through our lives,
0: and across disciplines.
1: Hi, I'm Avon. And I'm Mark. And today we're talking about spelling. (laughs) Not on the face of it, the most exciting thing in the world.
0: But it is a topic that gets people riled up.
1: Yeah, there's strong emotional responses, I think, to spelling. Possibly more really a response to educational systems. But anyway, we'll get to that. Before we do, though, that's a video that we're going to be talking about. So we'll get to that. But first of all, we want to say thank you to a new Patreon supporter. That's Masha Leifer or Leifer. So sorry about the last name. I hope one of those was correct. But thank you so much for your support. Woohoo! And then turning to our cocktails, we are starting with, anyway, a cocktail called an ABC cocktail, which may technically not be spelling, but mostly the alphabet.
0: But we will be talking quite a bit about the alphabet because of its role in how things are spelled.
1: And why English is so terrible. Mm. (laughs) Okay. So this is a cocktail we use in the Difford's Guide recipe. And the ABC cocktail is mint leaves, tawny port, cognac, maraschino liqueur, and sugar syrup. And then garnished with lemon zest and cherry. So cheers. Cheers. Mm.
0: That's tasty. Yeah. Mm. Oh, and the mint comes out nicely. Mm-hmm. That fresh mint.
1: Even though it's mm-hmm. not in it, like it's strained mm-hmm. out. So there's nothing there, but yeah, it actually like really gives it a, mm. a strong freshness mm-hmm. or as the review on the website says, wonderfully delicate. Mint gives subtle freshness to the classic pork ah, and brandy combo. Well, there <laughs> you go. <laughs> They're exactly right. <laughs> so this is a cocktail apparently from 1835 from the Bar La Florida cocktails. Mm-hmm. And it is, it's really nice. So with that as our prelude, shall we turn to the video or do you want to tell us anything about this video?
0: Well, the only thing I think I'll say in advance is it investigates why the English spelling system is the way it is. But in doing so, it has to go right back to the writing system that English uses. And to do that, it goes back through many languages because our alphabet is not just second hand, but third, fourth, (laughs) fifth hand. With a couple of... Many hands have been in between.
1: Yeah. With a lot of other... Alterations uh, on the way. Yeah. Fingers in the pie, shall (laughs) we say as well. (laughs) All right. Well, then let's listen to the audio for that and then come back and talk about it some more.
0: When I was a kid, I really struggled with spelling. Other kids seemed to pick it up so easily, and I was told to just memorize lists of words. But no one would ever tell me why words were spelled the way they were. It was only when I learned some history of the language in university that it finally started to make sense. At first glance English seems to have a downright chaotic spelling system, causing difficulties for young native speakers and adult second language speakers alike. Why is it circus and not circus? Why are we so confused about whether it's gif or jif? And why can a rough doe-faced ploughman stride coughing thoughtfully through the streets of Scarborough? Can't we just simplify English spelling? Well, as we'll see, English may not be quite as irregular as it seems, and there may actually be some benefits to those peculiarities. And maybe the problem isn't so much the spelling as the way it's taught, unconnected to the fascinating story of its development. Now that's a fairly complicated story, so I'm going to pick a few key examples, and I'll also be filling in a lot of details later with some other videos about specific letters and sound changes, but for now let me try to help make things make sense for you as they finally do for me. What is spelling anyway? Well, it's putting the letters of words in the so-called right order, but what does that mean? You might be surprised to know that the word spelling didn't have that meaning until the early modern period, which is when spelling first really started to be standardised in English. Before that you just wrote words the way you said them depending on your own particular dialect or accent. The Old English verb spellion from the Proto-Indo-European root spell, say aloud or recite, meant to tell or speak, and the noun spell meant narrative or story, as well as message or news. That sense is clear in the second element of the word gospel, which literally means good news. Spell could also refer to a magical incantation, a sense we still have today, but the Germanic root that lies behind the word spell also made it into French via the Franks, and there it took on a new meaning. Anglo-Norman and Old French forms of the word espeller and espalir meant to read out loud, as well as read out letter by letter. After the Norman conquest of England the French and British words merged, and it's from the French senses that we get the modern sense of spelling. But spelling isn't the only language word that has magical connotations. The word grammar comes from the Proto-Indo-European root gerb, meaning to scratch, and in fact also gives us the word carve as well as graph, the idea being that writing was originally carved into wood or stone. From the word grammar we also get the word glamour, first appearing in Scots English, which originally implied magic, meaning enchantment or spell, from the notion of arcane learning. Glamour then gains its modern sense from the idea that someone who is glamorous kind of casts a spell on people. So I suppose it's not surprising that I found the English spelling system mystifying. So one big problem is that there isn't a consistent letter-to-sound one-to-one correspondence in the English writing system. Some sounds require multiple letters, like the th in thin, or the o in oak. And some letters or letter combinations can make multiple sounds, as in the words streak and stake, now and no, here and there. This makes English spelling harder to learn, so why haven't we got rid of them to make things easier? Part of the answer, surprisingly, has to do with the mathematics of information, and my friend Jade from Up and Atom is here to tell us more. Thanks Jade for showing us what mathematical geniuses we all are for handling various informational balances in English every day. In fact, that just shows that there are patterns to how English is spelled that make it less irregular than it seems. And there's where learning the history of the alphabet helped me to see some of the patterns. So an alphabet is a writing system in which individual letters, at least theoretically, represent individual distinct sounds. By the way, that word character comes from another Proto-Indo-European root that implies the original carving or writing, ger, meaning scrape or scratch, which came into Greek as *charasain* to make sharp, and *character*, which, after passing through Latin and French, give us not only the word character but also gash. The word letter, on the other hand, is a bit of a mystery. It comes through French from Latin litera, letter, but before that it's uncertain. One suggestion is that it came through Etruscan, and we'll be talking about that language in a minute, from Greek diphthera, writing tablet, originally prepared hide or piece of leather, which I suppose might suggest another medium for writing with ink on animal skin. Interestingly, this Greek word makes it into French and English again, as a more direct borrowing from Greek, when physician Pierre Bretonneau named the disease diphtheria on account of the leathery false membrane which forms in the throat of someone who has the disease. But as I was saying, an alphabetic writing system theoretically can have a one-to-one sound-to-letter correspondence, but obviously that isn't the case in English, and to understand why we have to take a look at the journey the alphabet took to get to English. And when I say the alphabet, I really do mean THE alphabet. With only a few exceptions, such as the Hangul script of Korea which was developed independently, all the alphabets used today descend from one original alphabet. The story starts in Egypt with their famous hieroglyphics. This was a logographic system in which characters represented words, however sometimes the hieroglyphs could be used phonetically to represent the consonants of the word the picture depicted, and this could be particularly useful for writing things like foreign names. Around 2000 BCE a Semitic group in Egypt borrowed from the Egyptians the idea of using pictures to represent individual consonant sounds. They borrowed the pictures from the hieroglyphs, such as a hand, but ignored the Egyptian word they represented, substituting their own Semitic word for hand, in this case calf, and used that character to represent the consonants at the beginning of that word, in this case the k sound, and that hand character eventually became our letter k. Now at this point there were only letters for the consonants, which is why the Semitic alphabet is sometimes referred to as an abjad, an acronym made from the names of the first four letters of the Arabic alphabet, rather than a full alphabet with consonants and vowels. This was fine for Semitic languages which tended to have relatively more consonants than vowels, so writing down the consonants is generally enough to tell you the word, and this is basically still how the writing systems work in modern Semitic languages like Hebrew and Arabic. And if that sounds strange, remember what Jade told us. And this was the beginning of the alphabet's journey to English, because another closely related Semitic group known as the Phoenicians picked it up. Not that they called themselves Phoenicians, that's the Greek word for them, literally meaning purple people, because they were the source of a prized purple dye extracted from sea mollusks, which they sailed around the Mediterranean selling, and also it seems spreading their alphabet. And that's how the Greeks picked it up. Now Greek was a very different language from Phoenician, not a Semitic language, but from the completely unrelated Indo-European language family, and it had many more vowels and fewer consonants. So what the Greeks did was use some of the letters that represented consonants they didn't use for their vowel sounds, like the first letter of the alphabet. The Phoenicians called it aleph, which meant ox, and the letter form was meant to represent the head of an ox with its two horns. It also stood for a consonant sound that wasn't used in Greek but they needed to represent the vowel a, so that letter became Greek alpha, and eventually English's letter a. To round things off, the next letter in the Phoenician alphabet, bet meaning house, and representing b became Greek beta and English b, and together those first two letters, alpha and beta, give us the word alphabet, appropriate since the Greek alphabet is the first full alphabet including vowels as well as consonants. The next stop for the alphabet was the Etruscans, a group of people who lived in the part of Italy known today as Tuscany. The Etruscan language is not Indo-European, and in fact is not related to any known language what linguists call a language isolate. So again this language had a rather different sound system compared to Greek, and so some adaptations had to be made to fit the letters to the language. And from there the alphabet rolled down into Rome, where it became the basis of the Latin alphabet, which in turn spread around Europe and ended up as what we write English with today, with a few extra letters added in and some tweaks to the sounds some of the letters make. And that's why the English alphabet is often called the Roman alphabet. Now why is it so important to know all of this to understand English spelling? Well, each time the alphabet moved from one language to another it produced redundancies and quirks in the letter-to-sound correspondences. For example, the k sound. As we saw before, this was represented in the original Semitic alphabet as kaf. but the Semitic languages had more varieties of consonants produced at the back of the throat than Greek did, so the Greek alphabet didn't need all those distinct characters. Calf it kept, which became Kappa and later English K. The Greeks also initially kept the letter Kaph, forerunner of our letter Q, although it was redundant for them, and they later dropped it. The Phoenicians also had a G letter, called Gimmel, which became Greek Gamma. G and K are similar sounds, but it's an important distinction in Greek as it is in English, but in Etruscan it wasn't, although that language had a number of other varieties of back of the throat sounds. So they didn't need that Greek gamma, and assigned another type of k sound to that letter, in addition to keeping both k and q from early Greek. And notice that gamma looks a lot like the letter c? Well that's how we got the letter c, making a k sound, not the hard g sound of Greek gamma. And then when the Romans got their hands on the alphabet there was no longer a letter to represent the g sound, which Latin did have, so initially they used the letter c to represent both k and g. They eventually invented the letter G by putting an extra stroke onto a C, but that was only later. That's why the common Roman name Gaius was abbreviated with a letter C. For whatever reason the Romans didn't use the letter K very much, though it hung around as a quaint redundancy. As for the letter Q, for the Romans it also represented a K sound, but was restricted to the letter combination QU followed by a vowel sound, which was common in Latin. And that's why English has the redundant letters K, C, and Q often the target of those who complain about the English spelling system. We'll come back to the letter C and the multiple sounds it can make in modern English later. Now this problem of new languages using this old system came up again when old English speakers started to use the Latin alphabet to write down their Germanic language, which has sounds not present or distinguished in Latin. The Anglo-Saxon scribes coped by adding some letters from their own earlier runic writing system or modifying existing letters in the Latin alphabet. Later on, after Viking invaders conquered and settled in large parts of the country, there was an influx of Norse loanwords. At least Old Norse and Old English were related languages, but there are some significant differences which led to further adaptations of the spelling system. But the biggest shakeup came after the French-speaking Normans conquered the country. In addition to the vast amount of French vocabulary with its own sounds and spellings that came into the language, the Norman scribes didn't like the barbaric Old English spelling conventions and began spelling the Germanic-derived English words in new ways. So it's this mashup of different spelling conventions and a bunch of snooty scribes that made my life so hard as a kid. For example, j, a sound not in Latin, had been spelled in Old English as cg as in the word edge, but under the Normans was now spelled dge as in the modern spelling, and that convention was eventually carried over to some words of French origin as well, such as judge. But what about the j sound at the beginning of that word? What about the letter j? Well, it hadn't really been invented yet. In fact it's the most recent addition to the English alphabet. In Latin the letter I did double duty representing both the vowel E sound and the closely related consonant Y. But as the various local dialects began transforming into what would become the Romance languages, that Y sound began to shift to a J sound in early French, but it was still spelled with the letter I. So Latin Jupiter became Jupiter, though still spelled with an I. The J letter form did grow out of the letter I, but it wasn't at first used to differentiate between the two sounds, it was really just a fancy way of writing the same letter. It wasn't until 16th century French that the letter J started to be used systematically, and not until the 17th century did it arrive in English. In fact, as late as the 18th century, when Samuel Johnson wrote his famous dictionary, though he did use the letter J, he interfiled all the I and J words together. It wasn't until later lexicographers, such as Noah Webster, that the letter J got its own section in the dictionaries. So that explains the two j sounds in judge, which came from Latin eudex. If only they'd taught me etymologies in school, I would have won all the spelling bees. not that I'm judging. But you can also spell j with a g, so what's up with that? Well, in Latin the letter g always made the so-called hard g sound. But again, as French developed out of Latin, the letter g when it came before a front vowel that is vowels produced towards the front of the mouth, such as E and A, came to be pronounced J. A similar sound change had already happened in Old English, with G in some context becoming Y, which Norman scribes started to spell with the letter Y, as in yard. Confused yet? Don't worry, it gets worse. So we see French loanwords in English like gentle, following our hard G, soft G rule that we're taught in elementary school. But there are exceptions I hear you say. What about words like get and give? Well here's where we see the influence of Old Norse. Gat was a loan word from Old Norse, where g hadn't changed at all. And though give did exist in Old English with that y sound as yefan, and should have become yiv, the word also existed in a related Old Norse form in the north of England with a hard g, and therefore giv has the pronunciation it does today. So neither word is subject to the hard g-soft g rule derived from French, and you can generally identify a word as coming from or influenced by Old Norse if it breaks that rule. So the important question is, gif or jif, Norse or French? Well as far as I'm concerned it's an English word, so it should be pronounced yif. Now Old English did of course have a hard g sound, so that mapped easily onto the Roman letter g, but it also had a couple of guttural sounds that didn't exist in Latin, which the English scribes spelled with either h or g, in addition to still using those letters for their previous Latin sounds. The Norman scribes turned their noses up at that double use of letters, and instead often used the combination G-H to represent those guttural sounds. But why then is G-H pronounced in so many different ways in modern English? Well, first of all, there were actually three slightly different guttural sounds in Old English, and the sounds diverged in different ways, and some scribes changed the spellings to reflect that, and some didn't. In some contexts the guttural sound became a W sound, and came to be spelled W in modern English. As in the Old English word boga becoming modern English bow. But notice that Old English plogh sometimes spelled with a g and sometimes with an h is spelled in modern English as either plow or plow. Similarly we have modern English words with a gh spelling like do and bow which were spelled with a g in Old English, and through and though which were spelled with an h in Old English. In some cases, such as when following a front vowel, the guttural sound of gh just disappeared, as in high and night and in one surprising sound change the guttural sound became f as in rough, particularly in northern dialects of English. This one's so weird I'll have to cover it in a separate video. As for the different vowel sounds of the various words spelled O-U-G-H, they often represented quite different vowels in Old English, which all got lumped together under the one spelling, and therefore developed in very different ways. So to summarize, this train wreck is the result of the shifting spelling conventions in Middle English and subsequent sound changes that happened. Unfortunately the GH spellings became standard even though we no longer pronounce those guttural sounds. Now let's return to the letter C again and consider another sound it makes. Why do we have soft C and hard C? Well this is a sound shift that happened as Latin became French. In Latin C always indicated k. But as the various Romance languages developed out of Latin, as with the letter G, when k came before a front vowel it changed, eventually becoming s, and the French-speaking Normans brought that with them to England. So we now have the hard C, soft C rule. And these are just some of the different spelling conventions that influenced English spelling. English has also grappled with spellings from Greek, filtered through the Latin system of transliterating Greek words, as well as loanwords from languages from around the world, such as Dutch, Hindi, and Arabic. But that's a journey for another video. For now, let's look at another source of my linguistic struggles, namely the sound changes in English itself. Sound changes are of course a natural part of all languages over time, so this is always a potential problem for phonetic writing systems. If you have a one-for-one letter for sound correspondence, then over time you either have to change the way you spell things, or live with the fact that the letters stop matching the sounds. We've talked about a number of changes that have happened to consonants so far, and there have been a lot of changes to vowels too but I'm going to focus on the most important one in terms of its effect on spelling, which has to do with the short and long vowels. Originally short and long vowels in Old English, as in Latin, were just that, short and long in terms of duration, with the quality of the vowel sound more or less the same, and I'm simplifying slightly here to make this a little easier. The letter A represented a ah, and was pronounced quickly ah, or held longer, ah. so it wasn't too much of a problem representing both the long and short versions of the vowel with the same letter. And if you speak other continental European languages, like French or Italian, you know that's roughly true in them. But something weird happened in English right around the time that Middle English was becoming Early Modern English, gradually changing the sounds of those long vowels over a few hundred years. But it didn't affect the short vowels, so we ended up with the vowel letters representing quite different sounds. Again, I'm simplifying a bit here as there were some more minor sound changes that did affect the short vowels in Middle English. So the short a in swan remains basically the same from Old English to Modern English but the long a in Middle English nama became name in Modern English. This sound change is called the Great Vowel Shift because it affected the whole system of long vowels, with each vowel in turn moving in its position in the mouth. So a became a, a became e, e eventually became i, and so forth. And again, I swear I'm simplifying here, but that's why today we often say to children learning to spell that the long vowels say their name, a-e-i-o-u. This is also why it's become more important in modern English to indicate long and short vowels in the spelling system. There actually had been earlier attempts at that, well before the Great Vowel Shift. In the 12th century, a little while after the Norman invasion, a monk named Orm, who is now only remembered for his spellings, not the literary quality of his work yes, it's that boring, was unhappy with the way people were pronouncing English, and developed his own system of spelling. This included using a doubled consonant to indicate that the preceding vowel was pronounced short. We do that today as in the words write and written, but we don't do it because of Orm. No one actually picked up on Orm's spelling reforms, but the same idea was reinvented by later scribes. Poor Orm. Also in the Middle English period, many of the Old English inflectional endings, basically word endings that indicated the grammatical function of words, began to become reduced or disappear altogether, with the different vowel sounds becoming an indistinct uh or schwa sound, spelled simply with the letter e, and over time those e's stopped being pronounced altogether. But they stuck around as the so-called silent e, useful for marking the preceding vowel sound as long. But what's really crucial here is the timing of the great vowel shift, along with the other sound shifts that were taking place at the end of the Middle English period, since this was right around when standard spellings started to be fixed. Since the pronunciation of English at that time was so radically in flux, the spellings that became fixed reflected sometimes older, sometimes newer forms, leaving us with the mixed bag of spellings we have today. There had been earlier attempts at standardized spellings, but in the 15th century there were two factors that fundamentally influenced the standard spellings that we have today. The first is the development of the so-called Chancery Standard, which was used in official government writings in the first half of the 15th century. It actually started with King Henry V, who in August of 1417 decided to communicate with his officials in English rather than French. The signet office, which was in charge of his personal communications, developed standard spellings based on the central East Midland and London dialects. From there it spread to the other government offices, and as official documents were sent around the country other professional scribes began to adopt this standard. The other major factor is the arrival of the printing press. William Caxton, born in Kent, relocated to Bruges, in what is now Belgium, working in the textile industry. He wrote an English translation of a French account of the Trojan War, and after he picked up the technique of printing during a trip to Cologne, printed the first book in English, his own translation, in 1475. Then in 1476 he moved back to England and set up his printing press in Westminster near all those government offices, and began his printing business. Caxton was well aware of the problems posed by the variety of dialects around England. For his books to sell, they had to be widely understandable. In the prologue of one of his books he tells a story which really shows the scope of the problem. A certain merchant from the north of England visiting London tries to buy eggs from a local southern woman. He asks for eggas, and the woman replies that she can't understand him because she doesn't speak French. The merchant gets upset, his egg craving being unsatisfied, since he also could speak no French, until a bystander steps in to translate, telling the woman that he wanted aeren. This slapstick comedy story of a food order gone wrong is based on the fact that the northern form eggs, which comes from Old Norse, and the southern form aeren, which comes from Old English, are so different. And if you can't do something as simple as order some eggs, how are you going to publish books understandable by all? Caxton's solution was to publish in the London standard rather than his own Kentish dialect which he considered crude, and other printers soon merged this with Chancery English and spread those spellings even further. Of course it wasn't all smooth sailing. Early printed books were often inconsistent in their spellings such as the silent E being dropped or added to equalize line lengths, and odd things sometimes crept in like the letter H in the spelling of ghost from the influence of Flemish printers, possibly introduced by Caxton himself. But in the end Chancery English and the printing press give us the modern English spelling system we're stuck with today. There have been many attempts and proposals over the years at reforming the English spelling system, in fact almost since standard spellings arose. An early one worth noting is Sir Thomas Smiths, who in 1568 proposed a system involving a thirty-four character alphabet which for instance reassigned the redundant C to the ch sound, added letters, and used diacritics or accent marks to show short and long vowels. Others were more conservative, such as William Bullockar's 1580 proposal which stuck to only the already existing characters plus diacritics. He also wanted to drop unnecessary doubled consonants and silent Es, and objected to the so-called etymologically based spelling. This is when, for instance, the silent letter B is added to words like debt and doubt because it shows they came from the Latin words debitum and dubitare, even though they were never pronounced that way in English. In another example the S was added to island because of the mistaken belief that it was connected to the Latin-derived word isle from Latin insula, when in fact island came from the unrelated Old English "eland" and never had an S in there to begin with. I'll admit that if only this one suggestion had been taken up my life would have been much easier. But spelling reformers over the years more or less split into either conservatives or radicals, either tidying up the worst inconsistencies or reforming the whole system. What the more conservative reformers realised was that the radical proposals were unlikely to be accepted and would create the difficulty of learning a whole new system. That didn't stop the proposals. The two individuals most influential on English spelling standards were the dictionary writers Samuel Johnson and Noah Webster. Dr Johnson started out initially as a language reformer, but soon realised this was impractical and his ultimate conservative spellings used in his great dictionary served to further entrench existing standards. The American Noah Webster on the other hand ended up being the only successful reformer of the English spelling system. In the various editions of his Dictionary of American English and spelling books he started out rather conservative in his reforms, then later radicalized, and then gradually became more and more conservative again. But he is why the American spelling system to this day differs from the British system, which has in fact made things harder for all of us. Now I know I said I wished some of these reforms had happened, but what I really wish is that I've been taught some of this history way back in school because I think there are some real benefits to the spelling system as it now stands. First of all, it tells us so much about the history of the language, and there are some advantages to having a spelling system that doesn't have a simple one-to-one letter-to-sound correspondence. It helps us distinguish between the rites of the church and the rites of the church, or more recently between fishing and fishing. And how would a strictly phonetic writing system work with the many different accents around the English-speaking world? If you based your system on only one of these accents it would be a highly political decision, favouring some and disadvantaging others. And it would obscure the relationship between many words, such as nature and natural, which currently use the letter A to represent quite different sounds. And finally, a somewhat illogical spelling system gives so much scope for creativity from brand names like Flickr to text-speak like Great, to the unpronounceable own. So, first of all, I want to acknowledge some of the key sources that I used in researching that, the most important one of which is a very long and dense book by Christopher Upward and George Davidson called The History of English Spelling, published in 2001. And in addition to the very long and dense book itself, there are bonus chapters, which you can find online at www.historyofenglishspelling.info. This is a book aimed at academics, really. And it goes into exquisite detail about every little... Quirk. Quirk. Quirk and you know element of change that happened from the, you know and including the various different sources, all Latin, the various influences French, and things. yeah, okay. all the influences. So not necessarily a a book for the the average reader, but I read it so that you don't have to. I guess <laughs> <laughs> well, like, I found it really fascinating. It was, but I don't know that everyone will find it such a page turner that I did.
1: Not necessarily for a casual fan of language, but if yes. you're interested, it's there.
0: It is there. And also a book by David Sachs called Letter Perfect, published in 2003, which looks at the history of the alphabet. But in particular, I want to draw your attention to a book by Kevin Stroud. Kevin Stroud is, of course, the, the mastermind behind the excellent podcast, The History of English. Now, you may well know of his podcast.
1: He's also a friend of the this podcast. Yes, yes, I should
0: say he is a friend. So, full disclosure. <laughs> oh, I was just trying to claim him as a friend because oh, well. he's cool and I want people to know that we
1: like him and he knows us. <laughs> yes.
0: And while you may know about his podcast, you may not know that he has an audiobook called The History of the Alphabet and it is excellent. And if mm-hmm. you want all the details about all the letters, I mentioned some of them there, but if you want to know all the details about the development of all the letters in the alphabet, this is a great place to go.
1: Yeah. Highly recommended.
0: And lastly, well, another friend of the show, Native Lang, has a (laughs) video. Well, it was originally published as a series of videos and then compiled into its full long form called Totes Pill, an animated history of writing. And so Mm, all the details about different writing systems and the quirks about different kinds of writing systems and how they work and how they evolved.
1: And not just the ones that fed into english yes a whole bunch of other scripts yeah exactly
0: so that is a a good place to go and we will have links for all of these things in the show notes
1: i also want to just draw the link to the not so long ago discussion with the endangered alphabets with tim brooks because for instance at one point you say every alphabet except hangul is comes from these alphabets and that may be true but that's certainly not true of every script Many, many, many scripts. Yes. And so just a reminder that if you haven't listened to that episode with Tim Brooks, who talks about scripts around the world, do. Because <laughs> it's a fascinating yes. other layer to this whole discussion.
0: And that is episode, I don't remember.
1: No, I don't know. It was earlier but this several month. several
0: episodes back.
1: There'll be a link in the
0: yeah, description. We'll put it Put a link. And I, I will be, in a minute, talking more about different kinds of writing systems beyond alphabets. So yeah. I'll unpack that a little bit. But next, I want to briefly talk about English's irregularity and ask the question, how irregular is English exactly? Mark,
1: how (laughs) irregular is it?
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, I suppose there are a number of ways that this could be uh, quantified, but According to at least one survey of English, as many as 84% of English words follow a regular pattern. Only 3% of English words are so irregular that they have to be learned individually by rote.
1: Right. Okay. Yeah. No, I can understand that. In terms of ones that just don't follow any pattern that can be connected to any other similar set of
0: words. Now, the problem is that the irregular spellings are disproportionately common among the most frequently used words. Right.
1: So we run across them. Yeah, because for instance, Latinate words are really, really regular in their spellings because Latin is really regular in Mm -hmm. its spelling. And so all the fancy schmancy words may seem hard, but actually they're really easy to spell Yeah, if you know the basic rules.
0: But when you think about it, this actually makes sense because that's part of the reason that words remain irregular and haven't become regularized over the years. You use them a lot, so you're less likely to forget how you're supposed to do it. And I'm doing air quotes at my microphone In the
1: same reason, (laughs) in the same way that irregularities in speech, right, with the most common words You don't forget how to say it because you say it all the time. So even though the verb to be is terribly irregular, nobody forgets how to say I am, you are, because they say it every day. So commonly. And same with things you spell every day, even though they don't make any sense. Because while there are lots of really not normal short English words, most people who grow up writing English, those aren't the ones they tend to complain about because they're used to doing them all the time. And they know they're. Mm -hmm. they know what they are. Nobody's going to get confused.
0: So, yeah. So it's, it's therefore the words that you use less frequently that are going to get simplified and regularized to the standard pattern.
1: But the, because the most irregular ones are the most commonly used, people notice them and therefore, especially new learners complain about them.
0: Now I talked a bit there about the word spelling. Mm -hmm. So it's the sort of common word, there is a more technical jargony word for spelling, and that's orthography. Right. So I figure I should give the history of that word. The second part of this word is from that same root that gives us the word grammar, basically meaning carving. So the graphy.
1: Right. Which we know from lots
0: of other words for Mm -hmm. graph, for writing. And drawing. And, you know, so we also see that in the word grapheme, which is another technical jargony word in linguistics that refers to the smallest unit in a writing system.
1: So in an alphabet, it would be a letter.
0: It'd be a letter. Yeah. Or a digraph. So like two letters making one sound. So TH, SH, CH, and so forth. The first part of the word orthography comes from Greek orthos meaning straight or correct. So the English word orthography and its Greek antecedent orthographia mean correct writing. Mm -hmm. And of course, that orthos element we see in words like orthodontics, getting your teeth straight and orthodoxy, orthodoxy, getting correct beliefs straight. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But of course, as we've seen correct spelling, and again, I'm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We my,
1: get it.
0: We get it. <laughs> scare quotes at the microphone. Correct spelling is a relative concept depending on either the pronunciation of a particular dialect or an artificial literary standard or whatever. So, yes, more details on writing systems. So an alphabet is just one type of writing system. And, and so when I said that there is one alphabet with a few other exceptions, that only counts for writing systems that contain basically characters that represent phonemes of both consonants and vowels. And then I said there is the abjad, which is writing systems that use... Only consonants. Only consonants. But there are a whole bunch of other types of writing systems, many of which, well, all of which are quite a bit older than the alphabet. The alphabet is relatively... Well,
1: not all of which. There are other... Well, yes. there are other scripts. There are other that scripts are...
0: that are more recent maybe, mm-hmm. but, uh, but many of which are very much older yes. than the
1: alphabet. So the hieroglyphs that you started
0: that story with. There's the Chinese script, mm-hmm. which uses logograms, characters, which represent whole words and can also be used as syllables mm-hmm. with the, the logograms, the logogram system. This is good. If the pronunciation of a word changes because you don't need to change the character And also the logogram can be understood by different mutually unintelligible languages.
1: Yeah, You can use the same writing system for, in, in theory, we could use the Chinese writing system to write English. Yes. That's
0: like, there's no limit to it. Yeah. And so that's, for instance, very useful in the case specifically with Mandarin and Cantonese, they're not mutually intelligible to speak, but they're both very big Mm -hmm. language groups. And so, I mean. And they there, the there, are a writing few, there are a few issues with the writing system being mm-hmm. applicable to both, but for the most part, you can you can read right. just fine, mm-hmm. whichever language you speak. Now, the big drawback is that there are many, many individual characters to be learned in mm-hmm. order to become literate. Yeah. So it's harder. And typing is a Pain in the butt. <laughs> yeah. There
1: are keyboards, yeah, but, but build it's, keyboard, it's, it's very it's hard.
0: difficult. Yeah. yeah. Another type of writing system is the syllabary, in which a character phonetically represents a whole syllable, as in the case with the Japanese hiragana script. This system works well in languages which have relatively simple syllable structures, mm-hmm. such as permitting only syllables made up of consonant sound followed by a vowel sound, which is the case in Japanese mm-hmm. and many other languages. So English, for instance, has a much more complicated syllable structure. You can have consonant, vowel, syllable. You can have consonant clusters, mm-hmm. which is not possible in Japanese. Yeah. So, you know, it works really well with some languages. It does not work well with others. Right. That's the beauty of the the alphabet is that it, it can... Represent these more complicated structures. It's more flexible. It's more flexible. Now, in that voiceover, I mentioned that the first character in that early Semitic alphabet that was transformed into the ah sound in Greek to become the letter alpha mm-hmm. originally represented a consonant, but I didn't mention what that consonant mm-hmm. was. I noticed that. So I want to talk about that now. It represents a sound that we actually do make in English. And, well, I can't say for sure whether they made it in Greek, but I'm pretty sure they would have in Latin.
1: Talk about it and I will will discuss.
0: It's It's the glottal stop.
1: Right. So we make it in English, but it's not a salient sound.
0: Yes. So, it does not
1: distinguish words.
0: So it does not form minimal pairs. Mm-hmm. There it's it's not a phoneme. Mm-hmm.
1: So explain the glottal stop, first of all.
0: So the glottal stop is a sound that in English we make between vowel sounds. So for instance, and we do this naturally without noticing that we're doing it. But for instance, if you say, uh oh, there's a glottal stop between the o and the oh.
1: We stop stop the air going yeah. through with our glottis. <laughs> Yeah. that's why so it's we, a glottal stop. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah,
1: we close a part of we our back a, of our throat,
0: a bit of our mm-hmm. our mouth parts, mm-hmm.
1: and so it's it's a consonant because consonants are things that either stop or impede the flow of air, mm-hmm. as opposed to a vowel, which only shapes the flow of air. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, oh, I can't. I'm not breathing. My air does not go completely through all the way
0: through when i say it you can't find a minimal pair what i mean is you can't find two words that are distinguished only by the presence or absence of this sound yeah so it is used in a number of dialects to replace consonant sounds other consonant sounds where it you know it's where it still doesn't clear. change the meaning it doesn't change the meaning of the word it's just a way that it's pronounced in some dialects So for instance, you can find it in the Cockney pronunciation of water where they would say -er." water, but so it's not a contrastive sound in English. So you don't need to
1: be able to notice that one is being said or the other. And therefore, since we're talking about spelling, you don't need to record the difference when you write it down. You don't need to write it down. The only time you ever need to represent it is if you're trying to actually transcribe dialect. Yeah. Either for linguistic reasons or to, you know, represent it mm-hmm. in a novel or something like
0: that. Yeah, yeah we we do these kinds of pronunciations naturally in certain contexts, and you're not even aware of it. It's, mm-hmm. It it just naturally occurs in certain phonetic environments,
1: and so it doesn't need to be written down. It doesn't, it doesn't need, doesn't need to, to be written be down, distinguished in writing. Yeah, and when you want to do it, we do it in English by you know, putting an apostrophe or something to show that there's something missing. But Mm -hmm. that's only an approximate. But we don't need it. So our alphabet didn't need the aleph. Yeah. That's what you're saying.
0: Yeah. And well, presumably Greek didn't Mm -hmm. need to record it anyways, whether or not they pronounced it. Well, um,
1: and whereas Phoenician and other Semitic languages have a glottal stop as a a meaningful consonant. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, in fact, the glottal stop is an important consonant in... Many Arabic and many Semitic languages, Arabic and Hebrew and mm-hmm.
1: yeah. I don't think Latin has any it certainly doesn't have it as a meaningful.
0: No, no, it concept. certainly it doesn't have it as meaningful
1: whether people pronounce it again. Yeah. Who knows? who knows?
0: Now, sort of moving on from that to other back of the throat sounds.
1: <laughs> There's so many of those. Um, That's really if if we hadn't had the problems with the back of the throat sounds, a good 50% of the problems with English spelling would be gone <laughs> at least I think the c's the k's the g's the mm-hmm. gh's the ch's that there's so many that all come from this multiplicity of gutturals
0: yeah though english and
1: the sh- changing numbers of gutturals yeah. through the different english has, has
0: dropped basically all all I of know those. but if we hadn't
1: had them in the first place yeah. we wouldn't have these
0: spelling mm-hmm. problems
1: it was the existence and then the lack they of them used to be there
0: they're no longer there yeah. So, yeah, I talked about K and G sounds and guttural sounds, so I want to sort of unpack this a little bit. That Semitic language, that early Semitic language that had the first alphabet or abjad really, and the, and the closely related Phoenician language had a couple of different sounds that we would loosely describe as K sounds, in addition to a number of guttural sounds also produced at the back of the mouth. So the word guttural, it's not a very technical term in a way, but it's still kind of useful. But it's nice
1: and onomatopoeic, so it kind yeah. of gets the <laughs> sense across.
0: That word guttural comes from Latin gutur, meaning throat, and the g and k sounds are sometimes grouped with those guttural sounds, but they're actually slightly more forward in the mouth. Yeah, if you think about Palletal it, if you if you
1: if you do them. G and K, you'll, you'll feel that it's your roof of your mouth touching the back, closing, not the actual real back oh. of your throat, like yeah. g- or G.
0: Yeah. Yeah. G-, g and K are, are sort of, your, your tongue is touching in the soft palate, mm-hmm. basically. The the, the, the
1: the root of your tongue almost. Yeah.
0: yeah. So the, the, your tongue is touching in the, in the soft part, the soft part of the roof of your mouth. There's a hard part and a soft part just behind it. You can kind of... Mm-hmm. Move your tongue around and find those... Whenever you start outputs. talking
1: about phonology like this, all, everybody listening, because I do this when other podcasts do They're, it, everybody listening is to make the weirdest <laughs> faces yeah. as they
0: move. <laughs> so it's the hard palate that's the hard part <laughs> of the, the roof of your mouth. mouth. The, part the soft palate is the <laughs> bit behind that. So when the alphabet was adapted by the Greeks, they didn't need all those K sounds. So they still
1: had, they had several. They had a few. They yeah. had... They had more than English recognizes more than English does now. now. Yeah,
0: yeah. but and they didn't need as many no. as the Semitic languages. They had
1: did. the Kappa, the Kai, and the Psi. Yeah,
0: and the and they also had and the Gamma, the Gamma, and the yeah. Kappa. So the G sound and the K sound are both what are called velar stops. That is, they are produced by stopping the airflow with your tongue at the soft palate, as I said, towards the back of your mouth. And the only difference between their articulation is that the G sound, with the G sound, you vibrate your vocal cords, and with the K sound, you don't. So, and you can, if you want to look weird on the bus while you're <laughs> listening to this podcast, if you put your hand on your throat and go G and K, you will feel that when you say G, there's vibration there. You can feel it with your fingers, and when you go, k, there's no vibration, mm-hmm. and so that is a distinction called voicing. So, g is voiced, k is unvoiced, right? And otherwise, they're both velar stops. So, unvoiced velar stop, voiced velar stop. Now, when the Etruscans borrowed the Greek alphabet, since they also had multiple variants, loosely of a. K of a k sound, they didn't mind the redundancy of k and q as mm-hmm. letters, mm-hmm. and and remember, I should point this out: the Greeks initially kept that q letter, even though it disappeared later. Mm-hmm. But at that and that's point, that's
1: why it made its way. That's to why it the made Etruscans. it to Etruscan
0: because yeah. it yeah. hadn't been dropped by then. Mm-hmm. And what's more, since the Etruscan language didn't have voiced stops, so as a whole category, they mm-hmm. had no voiced stops.
1: So they only had. P- not b for instance and an yeah.
0: and t not d. d right and so therefore they had the k but not the g
1: so they didn't need that letter so they didn't
0: need that and so instead of using the greek gamma for the voiced velar stop they assigned that letter to another variant of the k mm-hmm. sound that they had and that's how we got the letter c making a k sound not a hard g sound. When the Romans got their hands on the alphabet, there was no longer a letter to represent the G sound, so they used the letter C to represent both K and G. And they eventually, as I said, invented the letter G by adding the extra stroke onto the C, but that was only later. Right. Moving on to the writing system in early medieval England, and in particular, the adoption of the runic letters into the Roman alphabet.
1: The runic letters, which may probably see our other videos on runes about this, have actually come from the Etruscan yeah. version of the Greek letters way back.
0: Yeah.
1: And been changed out of all recognition, but yeah. But they were not an independent invention as far as we can tell
0: yeah we believe probably and we don't have all yeah, the it's, evidence here it's, but
1: it's a little speculative
0: yeah. but yeah so the so-called anglo-saxons and again i use scare quotes around this word since this term is kind Not of being deprecated useful. but the the sort of early english in britain were basically illiterate they did have this runic alphabet
1: which they use for very very focused purposes mostly to do with magic and things right
0: magic and inscriptions right. so you would like write your name in an object that was yours but it was never used for sort of free-flowing text they gained Actual literacy from Christian missionaries sent to convert them. And a little bit later, I'll talk more about the complexities of these Christian missionaries and who is who. But for the moment, let's just say Christian missionaries came and introduced the Roman alphabet. And initially, the Roman alphabet was just used to write in Latin for religious purposes in England, but soon it was adopted to write in the English language. Mm-hmm. And again, we've talked about this in previous episodes and videos,
1: in particular to do with Alfred and to do with literacy programs yeah. and the development of English language. And when you talk about the future, in that video, you talk mm-hmm. about it, and yeah, so yeah. it's been all over. I'm not sure I'll even necessarily link LinkedIn, because it's yeah. all over the place, but yeah, we don't
0: need to get it's into it's all those it's details. Its first now. use was to write laws down, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. English laws as opposed to laws in Latin. Now, I'll come back to this point here. It's important to remember that there were two sources of missionaries coming to England with slightly different traditions. So one was from directly from Rome, and the other was from Ireland, who had earlier been converted to Christianity and then had been kind of Isolated from Rome. With the fall of the Roman Empire in in the so called Dark Ages. And so they both sent, you know, they both had this idea of convert, let's convert the 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 newly arrived Saxons and
1: Angles and Jutes Mm -hmm. and the Germanic peoples who had conquered or who Mm -hmm. had invaded England. Yeah.
0: There were obviously phonological differences between Latin and Old English, as is always the case between two languages. So. Once again, a few adaptations had to be made. Latin didn't have the th or the sounds the the two sounds that we in modern English represent with the letters th, but English did. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it is a very rare sound in languages worldwide. There's not a lot of languages in the world that have this sound, which is a kind of yeah. weird thing yeah. about English that it does
1: even other germanic languages don't.
0: Not all of them do. Yeah,
1: anyways. not not necessarily. It's mm-hmm. it's not it's not a universal germanic feature or mm-hmm. at least not
0: anymore. So Latin had to deal with this problem. And this wasn't the first time that they had to deal with this problem because these sounds sort of existed in in Greek. In Greek. Different versions what they were were
1: aspirated stops. Yeah.
0: So, Nit. And Pah. yeah. Now it depends what dialect of Greek you're talking about. It so always it depends gets a what dialect of Greek
1: you're talking about. But but those kinds of sounds. Yeah. Sounds that had to be differentiated from a non-aspirated P and T. That's the important part, right? Or back- T
0: and D. Leave the P H out of this for okay. the moment.
1: But uh when we get back to that minimal pair issue. Yeah. It doesn't really matter how you pronounce the t or th. What matters is that it's different than a regular T. And in Greek, a regular T and a T or th or however it was pronounced, made two, you could have the same word that meant meant something different, whether it had an aspiration or not. That's why you needed different letters for writing them. That's why you have a theta and a tau. And that was true in English too. Yeah. And it doesn't really matter exactly how they were pronounced in Greek.
0: (laughs) So yes, so the, the, the Greeks did have this letter, theta, as you say. And so when the Romans transliterated Greek stuff into Latin, they used the th letter combination. Mm-hmm. And so that was already there. And early on the Old English, you know, scribes used this th letter combination to represent that sound. But it was soon replaced by a new standard, a new spelling convention, by adding a couple of new letters. One of which was from that runic alphabet. And so that's the letter thorn. And a thorn is basically a perpendicular line with a kind of well thorn drawn on the side, a little triangle a little
1: sticking out bit. Yeah. 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 Like if, think of a a simplistic drawing of a of a rose stem. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And in the runic alphabet that made the th sound or the sound, but the other way of doing it and this is where it becomes important to, to remember that there's two groups That's of two missionaries. Diff- yeah, right. The other way of doing it was to use the Irish way of writing the letter D, and they put a stroke through that. To say this is the, the different D. The, the different D, yeah. That was referred to at the time as that, the word that, that was the, the name for the letter, <laughs> but is now referred to by scholars as Ev. And these two letters were used
1: interchangeably. There's so it wasn't that one represented the unvocalized and one represented
0: the... Yeah, the voiced and unvoiced. unvoiced sorry, yes. Yeah, it, the and th. So if you, again, if you put your, yeah. you can say th and th.
1: Yeah, but it, but they weren't, they didn't map onto those. It was just about they where didn't. the scribal tradition came from. Yeah,
0: actually, it se- what it seems to be is the way it looked on a line. So you would never use an ev as the first letter on a line because it hung over...
1: So it didn't the, look. It was sort of uh, it margin, was untidy. It, it looked untidy. <laughs> but you could, w- use it the line. you could use it inside the line. Use it inside. So the fine. same scribes used both. Is what yeah, you're saying? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So it's just madness.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes when you had a double thorn or mm-hmm. double f, they would use one of one and one of the other. <laughs> There's no reason for it at all. So like people blame standardized spelling for things, but.
1: Boy, it's always been a mess, yeah. is what you're saying.
0: <laughs> but when you're reading old English, you get just get used you're just to ignoring it. it. it, it because it doesn't because no, it doesn't matter.
1: A, right. No, 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 do- whatever. And it, yeah. the important thing is if you wrote the word yourself, you could use any combination yeah, you wanted. You nobody, want. nobody would care. <laughs> Who
0: cares? <laughs> yeah. When I write old English words, I never know when to use a, a Thorn or ad. It's sort of random what I feel at the moment. Right. Which but, one I'm gonna but use. It doesn't,
1: probably doesn't matter. It yeah. doesn't matter.
0: Yeah. For sure, that word was written both ways. So, so yes, so those are two of the letters that were added to the
1: added and then dropped again. They n- dropped they didn't again. they didn't make it to the end.
0: Yeah, and I'll I'll talk about what the Normans did. Well, I already mentioned what the Normans did. They you know changed they just a lot of
1: like old rules. They just basically took them all out. All yeah. the runic letters dropped.
0: All the in fact, any letter that wasn't used in Latin. Yeah, whether it was runic or Irish or whatever, they mm. dropped it. With one small exception, which I'll turn now to as well. So there's a special Middle English letter called the yog or yog or yog, depending on who you ask. It's the
1: yo letter. (laughs) It actually makes me think of yogurt every time I try to say it,
0: but anyway. Let's backtrack to Old English before we get to this Middle English letter. Old English had the hard G sound g, and so that was very easily mapped onto the Roman letter G. No problem there. But there were several different forms of the letter G available in the Middle Ages, such as the majuscule form. You which mean
1: written forms? Written yeah,
0: forms. Yeah. yeah, written forms different ways of writing it. So there's the majuscule magis- form, which we now call the uppercase G. At first, the so-called upper and lowercase forms were considered separate scripts and they weren't mixed. Mm-hmm. So you would write a whole word in uppercase. Yeah, or... the,
1: the uppercase, lowercase comes much later as terms. Yeah. So you're talking majuscule and minuscule yeah. were in the same way we might now talk about like Arial and Times New Roman. And yeah. I mean, I know it's not quite exactly the same, but similarly it was a different style of writing so you could write all in what we would call capital letters or all in what we would call lowercase letters
0: so you use the majuscule forms to write a title or heading or something like that or maybe the first word in a text or maybe even the first letter in in a bit of text to to give emphasis Mm -hmm. but they weren't considered the same they were different texts Mm -hmm. and that that's what's called the bicameral system of using capital letters within the same sentence, you know, going back and forth depending on the word or whatever for proper names or whatever it is. That's a later convention. So, they had the majuscule form, they had the open g form, which is known as the insular g. That came from the Irish, hence insular.
1: Can you describe that in this audio format?
0: Yes. It sort of looks like the the number 3 but if you imagine the top of the letter three flat, and then the rest of it just sort of hanging underneath. And
1: does it, is it a descender? Does it go below the line of the rest of the letters, or is it all yeah, on the same Yeah, it's letter? sort
0: of, so if you imagine the bottom of that letter hangs below, just like the bottom part of a letter G generally yeah, hangs okay. below
1: the line. But it's not... The open part is that it's not closed. There are no closed loops in it. Yeah,
0: there's no closed loop. It's like a letter three.
1: Because there's a lot of different ways of writing a lowercase g these days, Mm -hmm. but there's no script form now. There's no font that would use that. No.
0: No. Yeah. Okay. So that was the Irish form. And then there's the closed g known as the Carolingian g, which was invented at the court of Charlemagne in his attempt to regularize all the different scripts that were hanging around out there. And that is
1: closer to what we think of as a small G. Yes. It's like one of the forms of the small exactly. G. Exactly. So you have a kind a, of circle at the top with a thing and, a, and some kind of loopy thing underneath yeah. of some sort.
0: Yeah. So the early English used the Irish form, but later on after the Norman conquest, the new French speaking Norman scribes preferred the Carolingian form because it came from Charlemagne, French. (laughs) However, the insular G hung around for a while as a separate letter. So they became distinct, two different things. Right. And that was the insular, the Irish form became the yog.
1: You haven't said what that sound is.
0: So it started to represent distinctly a, a sound that was already there. But it was only in Middle English that it started to represent exclusively this sound as opposed to other G sounds. So um, the sound is? <laughs> so it came to represent the, the guttural sound, right? Now, we, I talked about how in Old English, the guttural sound could be represented by the letter G or the letter G could also represent mm-hmm. the, the hard G. So it's at this point that it becomes split so that you use only the open G to represent the kh sound and you use the closed G to represent the G sound. So
1: guttural here, you are using in the more specific sense of the kh yeah, kh, The, the or,
0: fricative sound as opposed to yeah, the stop.
1: But which you haven't actually discussed yet. So I just wanted to...
0: Well, I discussed clear. it in the voiceover that there was yeah. there were these guttural... Fricative sounds. So a fricative sound is where you It's a
1: vibration but not a complete closure. Yeah, you
0: don't completely close the, the passage, the air passage. You let some sound through, but it becomes turbulent because it's partially closed. So, so kh, kh,
1: yeah. The ch is the guttural one. The obvious fricative in the word fricative is
0: f yeah
1: and v are both fricatives, for instance. Yeah. So
0: uh, those and are front th- ones. I think as opposed to duh mm-hmm. or guh or, kuh, which or are all buh, stops, those are all stops. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, so we saw that that in Old English, you could have a bunch of different letters to represent that kind of sound. There was the H letter, which did double duty representing both the huh sound and that fricative guttural sound or the g doing again the same thing representing two different sounds but the norman scribes did not like the double use of letters and instead they often used the combination gh to represent that sound so in middle english you'll see both strategies being used to represent the sound either the yog the open the, this open Irish g, g. Mm-hmm. or the gh sound and ultimately the gh spelling and ultimately the gh one out
1: mm-hmm. But at the same as the time as the gh was winning out, we also were stopping pronouncing it. Yes, but didn't stop quite in time. No, if we'd stopped just a little earlier, yeah.
0: the no one would have had to standardized write standardized before this pronunciation the went completely, away completely
1: disappeared. Yeah, yeah. If it had been, that's why you say the timing is so important. Had we yeah. had we dropped that sound just a little bit earlier. Mm -hmm. then we would have dropped the silent GHs that we have and we words like enough. We would have just put an F on. It would have been fine. (laughs) But no, sadly.
0: So the last point I want to make before we take a pause and drink more booze. (laughs) Yeah,
1: you thought he was going to say before we ended this podcast. Oh, no, no. no. Oh, no, no.
0: (laughs) But more booze is required and we'll suggest all of you take a pause for booze because you're going to need it. Unless you're on the bus. (laughs) Or driving. Don't don't drink booze if you're driving. Is about writing standards, spelling standards. So there were, in fact, various sort of smaller scale written standards in English. Before, before
1: the Chancery ones.
0: Before we got the one that we we have now, such as, for instance, the, even in Old English there was the West Saxon spellings during the Old English period, which reflected the book production and political influence of the West Saxon kingdom in the later Old English period. So King Alfred and his successors
1: had enough put of a an bunch influence. of money
0: into yeah. scribes and learning well, and, and produced a lot and of producing books, producing a lot of books. And, you and learn
1: spelling by reading a bunch of books. So if yeah. you read a bunch of books, then that spelling becomes kind of a standard. Yeah. yeah. Not that they were going around whipping people for writing it the wrong way. They were no. just monopolizing to yeah. some extent the the production of books. Yeah.
0: And by virtue of the fact that most of the manuscripts that survive from, were a regular, from that production, from that book production, most of the old English texts that we have now are written in that standard. It's pretty, mm-hmm. it's pretty regular.
1: Mm-hmm. Except for their inability to decide whether to use an F or a, Thorn. Free variation.
0: (laughs) And there were many different written standards that emerged in the 14th century, but these were all regionally based and depended on dialect, which certainly at that point were very... Wildly different. different, (laughs) And changed over time as centers of influence shifted. And there were obviously later attempts at establishing a written standard different from the one that we've ended up with. So, in other words, spelling reformers,
1: and some of that has been slightly effective. American spelling is different than English the spelling. One successful attempt, and it the was only, only partially attempt. only partially successful. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's well, but lots of what Webster wanted to do didn't yeah, catch on. It depends
0: so. which period of Webster you're talking about. <laughs> but so, not everything he proposed, not everything was successful. Proposed. Yeah, certain. Certain of his works were very popular and successful, some of them less so. Mm -hmm. But he wasn't the only one. And so there were many other reformers over the years. More or less, they sort of followed in one of those two molds. Either, you know, the conservative reformer tidying up some of the more egregious inconsistencies, or the more radical reformers of the spelling system where they reassigned letters or introduced new letters or you know, mm-hmm. which would be much harder to learn. And what the more conservative reformers realized was that proposals that radically changed the system would never be taken up as it made too much of a break with the past and would create the difficulty of learning a whole new system, not to mention the fact that adding new characters would present problems for printers because I suddenly got to make new.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and, and one of the big problems of changing the spelling is you then need to learn new stuff, but that's only a transitory problem because the mm-hmm. next generation is fine, but now you need to learn new stuff to read anything old. So the longer or we get from
0: you reprint everything old, but yeah, you know.
1: but the longer the longer we yeah. get with one system, the mm-hmm. harder it is to change because yeah. there's more generations and more centuries of written yeah. production. And exists. once
0: once printing was in, and there were so many copies of stuff, it just it becomes, became yeah. You know, when it was only manuscripts, okay, who cares? This like which a is why some of, of the copies, few but...
1: the, some of the few countries that have been able to just change their scripts. Some of them have very long literary traditions, but a lot of them don't. That's one of the things that has made it successful. There are other other stories too, but yeah, that's
0: one of the things. Nonetheless, the proposals for reform continued and included the support of some very famous people. For instance, the Simplified Spelling Board, which was founded in 1906 and backed by the millionaire and philanthropist Andrew Carnegie. Mm-hmm. And also supported by the likes of Mark Twain and the U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So these are big names. It's the progressive era, right? Mm-hmm.
1: They fix, figure they can change everything. They can Fix it all. Mm-hmm. Fix the world.
0: And two years later in Britain... There was the Simplified Spelling Society that was formed and included among its supporters, Sir James Murray, who is the editor of the Oxford English Dictionary, writer H.G. Wells, and Sir Robert Baden-Powell, the founder of the Scout Movement.
1: <laughs> who
0: of all of them probably had the best chance of making it
1: work. Because you access he... to children. So. Yeah, exactly. If he could have persuaded all the Scouts,
0: <laughs> he'd have troops, troops under his control. Well, and the 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 last point I want to make against all of these attempts at spelling reform is, you know, but this sort of rigid sound symbol correspondence, it would eliminate some useful symbol meaning correspondences. So in other words, the graphic representation of a thing, regardless of how it's pronounced, could tell you something useful in mm. itself. And so for instance. And this is the very simplest example the plural letter S. We would have to spell the plural of cat with an S, but the plural of dog with a Z. So, cat's letter S, dog's a letter Z.
1: And what, and then we'd lose the fact that they are the same thing. Yeah, that we are doing the same thing to the, to the same, that they have the same function in, in grammar.
0: Yeah.
1: I mean, the other huge, absolutely huge argument against it is the multiplicity of pronunciations.
0: Yes. Which is a point I made. Yeah. And it, I but I just, you know, just want to yeah. bring
1: it up again because everybody who complains about it, just spend five minutes thinking about how differently somebody else pronounces things mm-hmm. and both of you write it down, what you think is phonetic and see if they make sense to you. Because just think about puns, Mm -hmm. right? Like it's, we we don't speak the same language at a phonetic level. And the minute you have a phonetic representation, it falls apart. English, that's true, I'm sure for every language to some degree, but English at this point Mm -hmm. is so global, is so widespread, has so many different speakers. Impossible that genie doesn't go back in that bottle
0: but even if if you were the ultimate you know our language American. snob, you thought there was uh, only RP one good speaker, way that the speak only it. proper way to pronounce English is British RP and screw the Americans because yeah. they're barbarians. Well, and all
1: the rest of and the And
0: screw all the rest of the Britons because they're just a bunch of poor.
1: And everyone in nobodies. India. Nobodies. And everyone in Singapore. And all of that. And everywhere yeah. and everywhere and in Australia and New Zealand.
0: Even if you thought that, <laughs> you would have to be stuck spelling cats America. and dogs differently. And that is dumb. <laughs>
1: All right, well, on that, mentioned that this stuff raises people's <laughs> dander, right? Like, yeah, it's an emotional issue. Okay, mm-hmm. on that emotional note.
0: Let's get boozed up some more.
1: <laughs> okay, so we are going to pause this recording and go make ourselves another cocktail. Then we're going to return and tell you about the cocktail. And you're going to talk about...
0: And then I'm going to talk about common spelling peeves that people right. have.
1: So to do even more emotional venting. Yes. right.
0: And I will try and explain them so that it maybe seems not so bad. I'll try and mitigate them to some extent.
1: (laughs) We'll see how well that works. (laughs) All right. Doodly-doo, doodly-doo, doodly-doo. Hey there. This is Avon from the future. As you may have noticed, this recording went really long. So we decided instead of putting out a three-hour episode on spelling, we would divide it into two. So this is the end of the first half. We're going to release the second half of the same episode next week, and it will start with another cocktail, the one we're making right now in the past. For more information on this podcast, check out our website www.elliterative.net, where you can find links to the videos, blog posts, sources, and credits, and all our contact info.
0: And please check out our Patreon, where you can pledge to support this show and our video project. You can go directly to the videos at youtube.com slash alliterative.
1: Our email is on the website, but the easiest way to get in touch with us is Twitter. I'm at Avensarah, A-V-E-N-S-A-R-A-H.
0: And I'm at Alliterative. To keep up with the podcast, subscribe on your favorite podcast app or to the feed on the website.
1: And if you've enjoyed it, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It helps us a lot. We'll be back soon with more musings about the connections around us. Thanks for listening.
0: Bye.